0: Hello everybody and welcome to the Kaiser Education Series. My name is Gabe Derman and I'm a human performance and education specialist at Kaiser and I'll be moderating today's panel alongside my teammate, Mike Compton. Today's discussion will focus on the relationships of force, velocity, and power and how understanding those relationships can aid in sport performance. Our three panelists are knowledgeable and have tremendous practical experience in the field. So I'll begin with the introductions. Our first panelist is Dr. Chris Morris. Dr. Morris is the Director of Applied Sports Science at the University of Kentucky, his alma mater overseeing all performance strategies for the Kentucky football team and other Kentucky athletic programs. Dr. Morris also spent time in Austin as the director of applied sports science at the University of Texas and is the author of the Omega Wave Theory and Practice Manual. Our second panelist is Dr. John Waggle. Dr. Waggle is the director of performance science and player development for the Kansas City Royals. Prior to joining the Royals organization, Dr. Waggle spent time in Chicago as a director of sport performance at DePaul University. He then went on to earn his PhD in sport physiology and performance from East Tennessee State University and is an expert on a number of topics, including periodization, athlete monitoring, and accentuated eccentric loading. third and final panelist is Todd Tukin, who is the VP of Performance at Kaiser. Prior to joining Kaiser, Todd served as an athletic performance coach at the University of Texas and went on to serve as an assistant athletic director at the University of Washington Olympic Strength Conditioning Department. Each of these three individuals had a profound impact on not only me, but many others in the field of performance, both professionally and personally, so it's a true privilege to sit down with them today and learn from them even more. Reminder for all attendees, you can drop any questions you have in the chat and we'll allot some time at the end of the discussion to address them to our panel. For those listening in who may have limited knowledge on this topic, a base level understanding is that power is the byproduct of force and velocity. There's a unique relationship between these three variables and is a relationship that we're excited to talk about. But before we dive into the sport performance, I'm going to ask Dr. Morris to provide some insight on the history of the relationship between force, velocity and power.
1: Yeah, thanks, Gabe. Um... You know, we've been studying this for for a long time, longer than most people realize all the way back to ancient Greece uh, with the Olympians there. You know, all the essays were written on just the importance of nutrition and muscular strengthening and aerobic exercise. Like these things have been documented through time and we recognize that they're important. Um, since force velocity has kind of taken like a, a hot word in the past five, five years, I think it's important to kind of recognize where that stuff started with you know, it dates back to, uh, length relationships back in the 1890s, uh, when we we're looking at just isolated muscles and, and frogs. Um, and as we move from like force length to force velocity with A.V. Hill's work in the 1930s, we start to kind of see the relationship between maximal strength and maximal velocity. And that's the curve that we're all kind of familiar with. Um, you know, The key point to notice here is when you, when you look at something in isolation, it's very pretty. And as we move through time and as technologies advance, we we start to look at force velocity relationships and single joint movements. Like, so isokinetic dynamometers, those are the things that we're, we're used to seeing in rehab facilities or labs that we're actually testing muscular performance in a very controlled condition. We've moved from isokinetic dynamometers, and now we're starting to profile like, uh, Exercises like squats, like Bosco was probably one of the first people to take the work of A.V. Hill and translate that into uh, muscular performance. So looking at the relationship between force and velocity and certain lifts to try to improve athletic power, uh, he was probably the first to say that power was king. Uh, and that kind of took off in its own direction in the strength and conditioning world. Bosco is a really important uh, part of that. And now what you're starting to see is things go outside the weight room. So J.B. Moore and stuff with sprinting and jumping. I want you to see like the, the trend from very basic, very controlled, very lab now it's a very complex and it's important to realize that because as you go from simple to complex, there's a lot of factors in there that can influence that force velocity relationship. So sprinting, for example, that we'll talk about here in a minute, does an athlete's mechanics, you know, alter the force velocity profile versus just looking at something like neuromuscular performance, or even as simple as like, does the athlete's motivation that day, if you're testing an athlete and they're motivated, they just don't want to do it. And then you're going to take this information and you're going to develop this whole plan around a day where this athlete just wasn't feeling it. It presents, you know, some limitations. So I think it's important that we kind of address that flow of the history of how we've come to know force velocity to how we have used it in the weight room to now how people are using it today in the field. Each one has its own merit, but I think we just need to kind of dissect each one of those and discuss the limitations of each.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great historical perspective. I think it's pretty incredible. Some of the work that you mentioned uh, from A.V. Hill, you know, early 1900s and going up to Bosco and present day. And, uh, you know, A.V. Hill was looking at their relationship through muscle mechanics. And um, the idea or thought of applying more force for performance actually, and you, you hit on it, uh, dates back to ancient Greece as far as 700 B.C. Um, during the Olympics, uh, long jumpers would run down the track holding weights, which they called halteries. Uh, the idea being that they would produce more force as they're running, and just before takeoff, they would throw them backwards and release the Heltieres, assisting them in the projection uh, forward for a longer jump. They thought about producing a lot of force to increase their velocity and distance. And now, in modern day, we know that we need to create a lot of velocity down the track to create force and power. So, uh, I thought that was a pretty cool history lesson, and thanks for contributing to it. Um, it's one I learned, you know, helped learn, and Todd put it in the chat from Dr. Jan Todd at the University of Texas. So, shout out to Dr. Todd and the Stark Center down there in Austin. So um, we're gonna shift our discussion a little bit uh, to the current day sport and performance. And Dr. Waggle, this question is for you. Can you take us through some of your decision-making processes and um, how do we decide which of these qualities do we need to actually train outside of sport practice to supplement our performance?
2: Yeah, it's... um... It's obviously going to vary sport to sport. Like Chris works with football, I'm in baseball. Uh, I've spent time in basketball, as has Todd. Um, so it's certainly the the demands of the sport are going to drastically influence, if not completely influence, what you're trying to measure in your athlete monitoring program. That's that's pretty pretty common sense at this point. But um, I think when you're looking at which assessments to do, uh, then you you have a whole myriad of things to to consider there. And, um, even in like the traditional science sense, you've got to have really reliable, really valid tests. You've got to have things that you can execute in your environment. Uh, the feasibility to impact ratio has to be in place there. And that's where, you know, that's a lesson I've learned, uh, really well, uh, in this environment because we we do have some pretty unique constraints. Um, not only like within our complex, but obviously every affiliate, um, and our major league team has a whole different set of circumstances. So trying to find something that's, um, that's applicable across all of those levels and has that scalability uh, It's certainly a challenge for baseball, but, uh, but, but exists in other places too. So um, beyond that, uh, you also need to make sure that that information that you're getting, that that data can be translated into something that's meaningful and actionable for people, which is where I think some of the profiling uh, stuff comes into play actually is that it, it takes a really, as Chris said, a really complex uh, thing that is sport performance or is, is sprinting or is jumping. Like all of these things have certain varying degrees of complexity and, um, being able to take that and make it actionable information is kind of where, uh, you need to stop and, uh, and make sure that you have in place before getting too far. And then the last thing I would probably add, and something that's been really important for our processes here is we continue to vet those, uh, year in and year out and make sure that, Um, What we are measuring is measuring either the physical quality um, that that we're aiming to, which is a pretty easy thing to do just with with is this thing valid, but um, obviously with a pretty skill intensive sport like baseball we do need to uh, be pretty precise with what physical qualities and the tests they're in that actually Uh, relate to sport performance and that's something that we have to uh, continue to ask ourselves year in and year out because uh, if nothing else we don't want to waste our coaches time and we don't want to waste our players time so we need to make sure that the information that we are getting is is being put to good use.
0: Yeah uh, absolutely and we're going to get into a little bit about uh, deciding okay are we measuring what we actually think we're measuring and uh, before we do that Dr. Morris, do you any, any further comments on that um, about how we decide which qualities we actually need to train to supplement a performance?
1: Yeah, and I, th- and I think we do. Um, I think we get in the mindset sometimes, especially in football, that we we've got it figured out in terms of what these athletes need. Um, the big one here that, I, that I'm trying to kind of reframe our thought process and our coaches thought process around is like this fascination with speed. And it's it's been from catapult. It's every practical. How fast do they run? Well, that's situational based. Did you give them a chance to run fast or give me the top 10 fastest receivers on our squad? And I've really challenged them recently to say, hey, let's stop and take a look at our best performers in those positions and then start working our way backwards, because performance is far, far from just physical and just as an example, so this this past year, uh, I challenged our coaches to look and say, OK, who are our top producing wide receivers? And we can do that from pro football focus and the coaches grades. And then I overlaid that with their speeds. And what they they saw quickly was our most our top producing wide receivers were below the 50th percentile and max speed uh, for their position group. And they were like, huh. And I was like, well, you got to think, what is the main job of wide receiver? They're like, well, to catch the ball well, not really what precedes the catch. They have to create space, right? They've got to create separation. So what are these factors that are are, are going to enhance their ability to create separation? What we found was that the reactive strength index uh, on the force plate explains a lot more in performance than just linear speed. And so just creating that conversation on the things that we're trying to develop and identify as deficiencies, really relate back to the performance itself. So I think, you know, a lot of us have to go back and look at like, all right, what is actually driving performance and then work our way backward and then figure out what assessments that we're going to do. And from those assessments, what we're trying to develop.
3: And can I, can I add to Chris, I think you had a great point when you were talking about just how fast did they run? And I'll, I'll pivot to John on this because you guys know you do a lot of force plate testing for jumps. How often do you hear maybe coaches or other support staff asking how high did they jump? And then how do you get to a point where you explain that that's a global output and how they achieve that outcome has more valuable information in it?
4: Yeah, um, obviously we deal with that quite a bit and it's an ongoing, I wouldn't call it issue because um, at the end of the day, it's similar to our discussion around peak power, like jump height is a global output measure and that global output does matter. It can't be, you know, completely discounted to to strategy or the individual components or anything like that. So, um, we're certainly, you know, wholeheartedly going to keep it, if for nothing else, athlete engagement and that, that quick snapshot of global output, but, um, to make sure that other parts of that jump or whatever the assessment is, um, whether you're doing, uh, you know, speed testing and doing splits or, you know, whatever the case may be, like to make sure that some of those individual components are, also valued, I think you have to do your due diligence and make sure that those things are tied to true sport KPIs. So how, how hard are they hitting the ball? How, how hard are they throwing the ball? What, what types of things are happening on the field? And then what aspects of your physical testing battery are associated with those things? And obviously the, the thing we deal with, uh, just because there's, um, there's so much heterogeneity in terms of physical capabilities, and skill is such an overwhelming mediating factor that, like, yeah, we see guys of a lot of different looks physically be able to do some really incredible things on the field. And that's that's something to be celebrated, but it's also something to be acknowledged as we build out our training programs, our testing batteries that um, we we do oftentimes look for even just a little bit of signal. Um, or we're one step removed from the game itself. and an easy example is stealing bases. So stealing bases is a, is a really uh, high level skill that requires a whole lot in the terms of like the cognitive perceptual space that you can read a pitcher, make a, make a move either back to the base or to second base or third base, wherever you're going next. If like, there's a lot that goes into that beyond running speed, however, uh, there is a, a, an element of it that you've got to be so fast in order to be a successful base stealer. And so we might be more interested in uh, not only measuring the running abilities of the player, but, the things that contribute to running abilities. Um, and those things can be gleaned from our force plates, they can be gleaned from uh, orthopedic assessments or, you know, a lot of different areas, but um, we might be just another step removed from the field itself as we're kind of trying to pull apart some of those relationships, more so than maybe a sport like football or a sport that, you know, I, I've worked with
2: track and field in the past. Track and field is about as clean as it gets. Um, you can kind of go apples to apples there and and take some direct looks but um obviously the more skill that's introduced in the sport itself uh, the more that you've got to kind of appreciate those nuances and and be able to take a step back
5: yeah, if you don't mind, I'm going to quickly chime in. And, and Chris, I'm going to go back to you here quickly. Um, with the stigma and of the 40-yard dash being such a high you know, priority in football, do you think that is detrimental to coaches being like, I'm all about speed when actuality we should be focused on the basics and principles of force, uh, velocity,
1: and power? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone knows the limitations of the combine. I think even NFL people know the limitations of the combine. There's been studies that have shown that there's not a massive relationship between NFL success and you know outcomes at the combine for specific positions. You know, like running back, for example, speed and mass momentum uh, will be a predictor in success in the NFL. But beyond that, um, you know, they, they know these things, and I it gets me to the point is like, are we even measuring the right things, these combines? But it's the same problem that we have here at UK is, you know, because physical is only a certain percentage of overall performance, I'm finding more and more that an athlete's technical and tactical ability and then also mental ability is something that's way, way undervalued, but very difficult to measure. So if you look at like the Cooper Cup story, right, He knew that he wasn't the fastest wide receiver, so he had to work extra hard on pre-snap decisions. He's like, okay, safety's coming over top. I have to cut my route off early. That's how I create space. And those things are hard to measure. Um, And so I think really in reality, um, it, it needs to be, we need to start in the field first. Look at performance outcomes, who's doing their job the best, and then find ways around it to kind of enhance maybe certain deficiencies like Cooper cup, maybe have a deficiency in strength. And we may need to improve that. Is that going to improve his game? It might, but it might help him from getting hurt. I think that's probably more the, the bigger conversation when it comes to, um, you know, that specific question.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I think everyone did a really good job, um, making the distinction between obviously that there's a large, large influence of skill on performance um uh John you have something to say
4: yeah just real quick I mean Chris touched on something really important especially I think as you uh look at I mean really any environment but college athletics in particular with hours limits is trying to find that thing that is limiting performance and allocating your time accordingly like Chris only has so much time uh with all of those players and Um, If you've got a player where the physical or the strength or the power, the, you know, whatever the speed is, is the thing that's limiting them from being able to do their job, then of course allocate time there. But there are a lot of examples where I think um, the physical has been overweighted uh, at the expense of the technical tactical, um, which is really the limiting factor. And that takes a little bit of an appreciation, not only for the sport itself that you're working for, but um, to, your varying role in preparing athletes and, and letting them reach their ceiling, like it, it always takes a performance team. And Chris mentioned some things on the mental side, on the nutrition side, mm-hmm. on the there's other practitioners outside of SNC or outside of uh, you know kind of our traditional uh, realm or education that uh, might be the the most impactful people. And you've got to really appreciate that those people have um, have have the potential to make that difference. And so um, that starts with that whole unit making sure that they understand performance itself.
3: Do you, do you think we, we go towards physical because a lot of people pull from track and field disciplines as an area of influence? Like, I mean, you know, a lot of team sports still look to track and, track and field for, you know, as the guiding light. And like you guys said before, it's pretty, a lot of times can be apples to apples. So do you, do you think that's part of the reason?
2: Uh, I'll kick it over to Chris. I'll just add something real quick. Yes, but I think that's completely fair. Um, because if you're looking at things from the physical lens, like you're not introducing the technical, tactical it, elements to that, the cognitive, perceptual pieces until later. But if you're a, a practitioner oriented around the physical preparation and development of players, like that's a completely uh, fair take uh, from from my perspective. You just can't be so myopic that you think that that's the only way to view performances through that lens. That's where I think we get into trouble is that um, we we have the background that we have and then fail to appreciate uh, and have any empathy or understanding for that of others.
1: Yeah, and and I just think that physical is so easy to measure, right? And so we tend to do it a lot because we can do it. And we start to think about how do you measure technical performance and how do you measure tactical performance and it's just it's so easy to measure in the weight room and it's easy to measure often that I think we tend to kind of go that direction. Um, and, and so I think that's probably a big reason for that bias, um, you know, I, I think to I was going to piggyback up. John, a little bit with just that time uh, and that return on your investment. And I think one of the big things that we're trying to do and and what we need to move towards is as athletes progress from year one to year four, there's going to be a certain level of achievement, like strength, like there's no point of moving on to technical and tactical, if they don't have enough strength to express that technical tactical. Right. So there has to be a base level of strength, but there has to be a base level of speed. But like, once you achieve those things, Like, let's just say you have a third year guy that is already squatting over 500 pounds, like the amount of time it's going to take them to get to 500 to 550 is probably massive. But the return on that is going to be so small, it's not going to make any significant impact on the field. So why do we still have those kids that are squatting well over 500, 600 pounds? And the way you're in four days a week when they're limiting factor is they can't process the game fast enough to even express that strength. So I think it's almost like we have to identify when these athletes fill up those buckets and then when our return on our investment in these specific qualities is starting to diminish and move them on to their next big limiting factor.
3: Yeah. Great point.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you brought up, uh, a point about, you know, being strong and too strong and when that point is, and there is a lot of discussion in the performance world about being strong enough. And, um, I'm going to kick it to Todd and then you can, the other two will have a chance to answer. Let's go down that road. Like what thoughts do you have on what is strong enough and how do we measure what actually is strong enough? And when do we know that could be specific to an athlete, a sport? Like how do we know as practitioners working with athletes in the weight room? Okay. How do we know you're actually strong enough? Assuming you have the tactical and, and skill developed to be successful.
3: Yeah, I think that's a that's a great question. I think it it gets really messy when you get into team sports. And, and John and Chris have both talked about it when you come into the high level technical ability you have to have. Now, I think one thing that I would love to have us kind of discuss is one thing you always hear is being able to back squat twice your body weight. And when in what sport do you think that's appropriate? And then with a team sport athlete, for instance, we maybe we're talking about tennis. How do you decide that you know, what they need to do in the weight room when they're they're constrained to a small court and they have so much, you know, technical ability they have to be able to perform. And, you know, for me, when when you try to find out what's strong enough, you know, this is where I, the, the test that you're going to probably need to perform, like if I'm talking about a tennis player, I'm, I might not want to try to back squat them um, because of the rotational aspect of the sport. You know, that's something that I'm going to want to have constrained. I want something that's reliable and I want something that has probably a low level of skill so they can actually produce their force um, and feel safe with a really high intent. And so I think that's when you rely on something that's maybe towards, you know, a leg press or it's, you go back to maybe a, a counter movement jump, maybe some weighted jumps, things that, you know, maybe would be a little bit safer for those type of athletes. But I do want to spin this both to Chris with football, because you, you deal with athletes that are, you know, on the offense and defensive line that have their own unique strength capabilities to a quarterback and a receiver where you're talking about the perception and then the saying to you dealing with baseball, which is, I mean, in itself really unique. So yeah, I'll spin it to whoever wants to jump in on that.
1: Yeah. I, I think it comes down to um, your position specific. I mean, cause every, every position on the field has certain movements that are unique to them um, you know, who are your athletes that are going through, you know, high moments of eccentric deceleration versus how many are predominantly concentric. So, and even in linemen, it's just like what's run performance versus pass block, right? Those are two different muscular actions. And so I think from, um, what's strong enough, that's, a, that's a really difficult, um, one, I think to just say globally, two times your body weight, I think athletes that are going through a lot more you know, higher velocity eccentric movement probably would benefit from those higher squat. Um, and this is kind of that's jumping in more John's like expertise in eccentric loading. But uh, I just find that you know absolutes are are hard to chase because you have genetic ceilings of every athlete. Uh, I used to be I used to be in the camp that you should just train until you maximize genetic potential. But you know, some people could genetically potential squat over seven hundred um Like, at what point does, I guess the question is like, if they can do it, is it going to hurt them? Like, if they are advancing, like if they're growing at a rate and that return on your investment is still high, why stop them? But that was kind of, but it, that one's a hard one because it's like you get to, all right, you get to 500 or 600, but then they're technically lacking in their playbook. Maybe we should shift them to the playbook and less on squats. So, I mean, you can make arguments for, you know, each, you know, sides of those camp. I just don't think we have a lot of solid, you know, research on injury and squat and position specific uh, rates in football.
4: Yeah, I would
2: kind of take the same approach as Chris there. It's a really challenging, if not impossible question to answer. And it's really going to come down to, um the two lenses there, there's a performance aspect to this. And then there's an injury risk reduction aspect to this too. And there's going to be levels of deconstruction that you can have in order to help you address that two component model in a sense that Todd, to go back to your tennis example, if, uh, which this is my ignorance in the sports, so I apologize, but if I have, let's just say a very, uh, high end serve velocity, like that context specific strength of being able to express that force production within the context of the serve that athlete is clearly strong enough uh, to have that aspect of their performance like in place like that that's that's not a back squat that's not a that's not anything there however um there's obviously some elements either at the joint level strength piece the single limb strength piece the um, just general global strength can be measured with like a mid-thigh pole, an iso squat, a back squat, whatever the case may be, that might have some injury risk implications to it there too. So from the performance lens, that tennis player may be strong enough, but they not only have to be able to execute one serve, but, uh, you know, tens if not hundreds of, of serves within a match or within the course of their preparation for a match that there needs to be some level of resiliency that um is introduced via strength training and getting stronger and so it becomes a little bit of a gray area that, that allows for a lot of nuance as simple of a question as it is but um it's just like anything else in a sense that has been mentioned by chris and utah you, that you've got to let the sport talk to you and you've got to mm-hmm. you've got to let that uh, communicate information uh, about even the the context specific strength that that athlete may possess
0: Yeah. So, um, some really great points that are made there and, uh, John, going back to you, maybe if you're willing to share, you're able to share, can you share maybe some specific tests that you'll do, let's say for a pitcher, right. Or for an athlete, uh, a baseball player. And then even from there, maybe what's even an injury occurs, let's say at the shoulder, right. Deconstructing the injury itself, like what tests are then really important to you, uh, as you begin to bring this player back to performance.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean we we obviously consider data from a lot of different places and a lot of different departments. We have really good people um, on the medical staff, nutrition, strength conditioning, uh on the pitching side, uh R&D, like we we get a lot of a lot of ingredients that go into a decision making process and and even the testing battery for that matter, but um you know broadly speaking we've um We've identified that our pitchers need to have good lower body power in place to even be within the topic of, of conversation here today. So we lean on uh, certain variables uh, from our counter movement jump on the force play, which so is probably no surprise. But um, we also have identified that their conditioning levels uh, is really, really important uh, or are really, really important as well. So we do the yo-yo uh, IR1 assessment and make sure that our, our pitchers are now fit enough not only – uh, not only strong enough, which if you've seen, which this is publicly available data, but if you've seen some of that information, you know, they run really, really, really high heart rates for eight, nine minutes at a time in an inning. So it, it actually becomes pretty logical once you, once you take a look at some of those data. Um, so th- those are two pieces. And obviously like our, our medical team does a tremendous job getting, um, getting, getting, probably close to 100, 120 data points on every player. And that's more the joint level strength, range of motion, you know, things like that. But Gabe, to your your question about the injury side of it, you know, not only do we have some um, preventative measures in place, because we have normative, uh, you know, standards on all of these measurements too, because we're fortunate enough to where our monitoring processes from a couple of different areas have been going on for a few years, Um, even predating my employment here. Like we've got a lot of information that we can lean on of, like, okay, is this person strong enough relative to his peers? So now there, there's that comparison that can inform us um, on the front end of anything to build out arm care or you know, anything like that. But also when a player does get hurt, obviously, uh, that's unfortunate. Uh, and we want to try as best we can to make that as an opportunity to have them come back better than they were prior to the injury. And so that's where we're going to then take a look at all of that information and say, okay, where where are the deficiencies? Not necessarily from the standpoint of, like, this contributed to the injury, or this is the reason for the injury. But um, if we're trying to now have, especially in longer-term rehabs, we have an opportunity to uh, to do a lot of good for that player to set them up to to not have to spend extended periods of time with us again. And so um, that that's where that information will will come into place. But for our pitchers, there's there's some broad physical qualities that that we capture. But then obviously, um, with how difficult throwing is and how unique throwing is, we we need to introduce some joint level stuff as well.
3: Did you have any pushback on the yo-yo test?
2: Um, I feel like uh, the yo-yo was in place before I got here. Austin Driggers did a lot of really good work uh, to build support for that. And then we kind of continued to vet it. You know, we looked at how guys uh, sustained their performance and, and how their conditioning levels uh, may play a part in that. Um, And we had, we had good buy-in in in the sense that our players are certainly willing to wear heart rate monitors for us and, we can get more information beyond that that exists on on the research side of things um but obviously no one likes to run the yo-yo it's a tough test um that's, that's, that's why i had to, i had to ask
4: yeah you know we're
2: we're fortunate that uh one of the time points that we we run the assessment is obviously during spring training because we want to make sure that we have that information as we do throwing progressions and things like that and it's not all that hot in az yet so uh and, mm-hmm. and you have the excitement of the new year to to bank on but uh We do also have them run it at the all-star break just to make sure that the conditioning programs that we have them going through are actually working. Um, And that, that one, you know, it takes, takes some precision uh, there just because (laughs) guys are in full competition mode, but um, we've done a really good job and that's not a me thing. That's everybody else thing of just continuing to relay to the players. Like, Hey, this is, this is being measured for a reason. Here is that reason. And, uh, and this is why, uh, we're going to ask you to do this assessment and and do it on a repeating manner. So, um, now we we've now three four years into this, it's it's just part of their preparation process and ongoing athlete monitoring. So that's kind of a nice thing to to be having in place.
1: Yeah, and just to throw support more for the aerobic capacity pieces and pitchers. When we were using a MegaWave uh, out of Texas, we were just looking at all the pitchers the pitchers that had the highest aerobic capacities were also the ones that had the best omega wave scores day to day to day to day. And I can even extrapolate that to just general populations. The higher your aerobic capacity is, the lower the cost of doing daily activities. And so your recovery is going to be that much more enhanced. And so I think globally, even in football, I think aerobic capacity is a much, much underappreciated aspect of performance and recovery. So
2: Mighty mitochondria, man.
1: Yeah, buddy. Mighty
3: mitochondria.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Chris, I think I was a part of that staff over there at Texas. You get guys like Kyle Johnson and Morgan Cooper and that on that staff, some pretty good players. I think Kyle Johnson ended up being a Royals guy, um, I think. Um, But pretty, pretty cool stuff. I remember that. Um, Mike, did you have something to add there?
5: Yeah, apologies for that. I just threw in uh, actually John Waggle, Dr. John Waggle's talk on uh, pitchers and conditioning from last year's um, summit at the UFC. Fantastic. So feel free to give that a listen. Uh, But my one question, um, and I feel like Todd, Dr. Waggle, and Dr. Morris, you guys have all touched on it. And Um, Dr. Wagger, with your experience coming up from the collegiate setting, being a a baseball player and working in baseball, and then Dr. Morris, yourself playing collegiate football and being in football, is that the missing piece then is understanding what the sport actually entails and your experiences um, in that sport, making the appropriate decisions on what assessments you need to take and then how to implement your training? Um, with the different pieces to achieve what each athlete needs. So either for uh, Dr. Morris or Dr. Wago with your guys' experiences.
1: Yeah, I think anytime that you were a, you know, you have participated in that event, you're going to have a much higher understanding of, because you've personally gone through the demands of the game. Now, even though I was a punter, I did play tight end, um, in high school and DN in high school. So I, I can appreciate uh, some of those other elements, but it, you know, I think for me, what it's provided me is it gives me a better scope of the game to then allow me to ask better questions. It's like I can observe a phenomenon that's happening in the game that allows me to say, huh, maybe, you know, these wide receivers are creating space, not because of their speed ability, but because of their reactive strength or their, you know, twitch, or whatever you want to call it. Or maybe the offensive linemen that are getting drafted or scoring have higher GPAs and are in harder programs here at UK. Maybe intelligence has, you know, and, and you've been on the line, right? You have pre-snap decisions. You have to think fast. And so, you know, playing the game will uncover things that, you know, maybe someone that hasn't had I, I, like me in baseball. I wouldn't be able to do. I, I don't know anything about it. Like I wouldn't be able to relate to a pitcher. Wouldn't relate to me, you know, trying to even to hit a 95 mile an hour fastball. So it's it's hard for me to say, okay, what are the things I need even to look at or assess? Um, so you know, just having that personal experience, gone through the training, gone through the suck of things, gone through the injuries, you you just have a much greater appreciation for the demands, and so then you have a much greater appreciation for the needs and the the needs analysis. Yeah, yeah. totally agree with
2: everything ahead, Chris said there. And um yeah I think the other thing to add is that it, it definitely changes the learning curve um, of the sport that you're supporting um helps you ask better questions help you helps you get at uh, kind of what you need to do to be effective a lot more quickly. Um, and that's not only on the technical side of, of being a sport scientist or a strength conditioning coach or whatever the case may be but obviously there's a there's an overwhelming human element to the impact that we can have and having played the game, it's really nice to be able to, to go in and not have any of those uh, any of those barriers that you can go in and and talk the talk uh, in a sense. But I I don't think that uh, having worked with sports that I'm less familiar with, uh, I was in men's basketballs and tennis and track and field and soccer and, you know, all kinds of of games that I was, of course, uh, Amazing at, at age twelve, but like, yeah, Matt. You know, or there, there's not a lot of history there. Um, but you, you know, with those situations, is you're not facing an insurmountable barrier. You've just got to really invest and do your homework and be willing to to be naive and ask questions and spend time at practices and do do all of those things. that I know everybody on this call call has done. Um, it, it just when you haven't played the sport and you don't have that level of empathy, you've just got to go into those situations knowing that. Um, you're, you're going to have to, to really do, do your homework in that sense.
0: Yeah, for sure. And um, we talked a little about some of the tests that we're doing, and there's a nice contrast between college football where you have performance, you know, once a week, performance that really matters, and we have baseball where you have a really long season, 162 games in the regular season. Can you guys give us some insight a little bit on not just the tests that you did, but then the frequency of testing that's going on? John, I mentioned you did some force play jumping. Like, How often are you guys doing that? Um, what other tests are you doing and how often are those, do those tests occur throughout the course of the season?
2: Yeah, our um, so our fatigue monitoring processes, obviously we do um, external workload management every day. Um, so whatever the players do. Um, not probably unlike what Chris does with with football, or what a lot of clubs do with football, with GPS and uh, pitch counts, and you know all those things that that impact our game from an external work standpoint. Uh, measure those daily, but then we do. Um, that would be the dose on the response side. We lean uh, a lot on the counter jump, and, and we've built a kind of a series of of rules that would alert us to a player that is having a, a decrease in performance. And that's either acutely like session to session or uh, over a broader window of like the past month or the past two weeks so that we can be alerted to trends as well as uh, really immediate short-term changes. Um, so with that, uh, the jump is great just because we can embed it within our strength training sessions. Um, it, it lends itself really well to, to being in this environment and isn't easily mediated by um, by lifestyle habits in the sense that you know like a heart rate variability measurement is going to be you know really influenced by time of day um you know caffeine consumption you know those things that we, we just don't have as much structure uh to to lean on to to make one of those measurements uh so the jump is great in a sense because it, it's something that's low skill low learning curve for guys we get a lot of good information from it and those guys are doing that twice a week Um, and so those reports are sent out daily and we'll, we'll work collaboratively to make decisions off that information.
0: Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And Dr. Morris, how about, um, in collegiate football where we have competition every Saturday?
1: Yeah. So a lot of our stuff is, um, GPS based workload based, um, We've done everything from projecting load to, you know, using GPS to kind of fill up buckets because the hard part, the hard part, a hard part, what we've noticed lately um, is it's really difficult to create game-like situations within a practice. Meaning, you know, when we script plays, it's usually three plays, four plays for our first team and the second team coming at rep, third team comes and get reps. So, you know, For us, it's just using that information, those assessments to identify areas of practice where we can, you know, get game-like speed, game-like change of direction, game-like contacts. Um, You know, for us, when we don't get those, it's going to the coaches and say, hey, if we can't create these within the practice, then we have to artificially create them after practice. And so now we will start to see a lot of coaches will go fill up their buckets for things that were missing or deficient in the practice itself. And that stuff also goes to the strength staff to say, okay, you know, if we're not getting a lot of high CNS work on the field, is that something that we can supplement in the weight room? Um, So that's been something that we've been, you know, kind of pushing here the past couple of years, um, just because as the season goes on, it seems like practice loads keep getting less and less and less and less and less to the point where I'm like, well... You know, now we're becoming at a risk at the game load is becoming too high. So we're not getting enough work during the week, and games never going to change. You know, then we have this massive shock to the system. So we need to somehow supplement this throughout the week. Um, so that's our big in-season assessment. Uh, in terms of like out-of-season assessments, you know, like let's say we'll go back to force velocity, right? You could do force velocity profiles. I think doing them no more than maybe one twice a year to kind of give you an idea of where the athletes hit. I think just seeing the athletes come through the door, most of them need just general strength to begin with. Like they don't even have the general strength required to even express velocity. Um, So, you, you know, if you stick to that kind of construct and only use force velocity for maybe like your third year or fourth year guys that might need a little bit of like different stimulus to promote or get out of stagnation, you know, I think that's where like maybe additional FPP tests could be beneficial. But, um, you know, beyond that, it's just your, your typical things like just like general strength testing. Uh, we use DEXA here for body comp um, and they're real big on speed. So he likes the, the flying 30 is like his the end all be all here for in terms of like overall performance. And so a lot of our assessments just built around speed.
3: Yeah, and I'd like to jump in too, because when I was at the University of Washington working with men's basketball, both Chris and John were huge influences on what we did with our assessments. So, in a Pac-12 schedule, we had a game every Thursday and Saturday. So for us, we would do our jump testing on Tuesdays and Fridays. So we would get one two days out from a game, and we go one post game. You know, and for our on-court monitoring, we would do GPS and heart rate, so we were able to like collect those loads. And same, you're just trying to build out trends. And for what Chris was saying, he helped me a lot with this is as I was watching practice, we at times of the late in the year, we weren't like the game intensity was becoming so high and our practice was becoming so low that we had to supplement, you know, some work in the weight room, which was okay because at least, you know, I was there at practice and after practice. And so that was an easy way for us to work as a a staff to make sure that everybody was always prepared. And so even the people that would only get under 15 minutes, we know those game days were pretty low loads for them. And so we would have to make sure we would supplement on the backside. And so I, I think it's just important to be like John said before, if you're working with a sport, you necessarily don't understand you're on the court and you understand what's going on.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you everybody for sharing. And, uh, Chris, you mentioned a little bit body composition and, uh, can you talk a little bit about that and how body weight may influence those specific metrics that we were talking about, uh, power, force, and velocity. And, uh, we talk a lot about the training interventions that we have on those metrics, but can we talk a little bit about how body weight and maybe body comp have been either successful or unsuccessful and positively positively influencing
1: those qualities? Yeah. Well, you know, back to some track coaches I used to work with, Texas would say fat don't fly. So it's, it's, I think it's, you know, not an elephant in the room. I want to say elephant in the room. I think body weight and just weight in general has its physics, right? It has a significant impact on how you you move your body through space. And so depending on what your sport is, you know, body weight and body comp can significantly affect performance outcomes. Soccer. If you're carrying around excess weight that isn't helping towards producing force, then that's going to come at a decrement to probably your aerobic capacity. Um, Same thing with sprinting. If you're carrying around a lot of non-contractile tissue that's not beneficial to you, but slowing you down, it's not necessarily going to be beneficial. So, you know, body weight definitely does have, um, you know, a factor in, in some of these assessments. It's just a matter of, you know, what what this, paci- or this specific specific position requires uh, from their movement demands, and you know, does that weight put them at risk of injury and or decrease performance? Because weight, sorry, weight in general isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like like I said, running backs who can you know that are heavy that can run fast are more valuable, right? Because they can knock people over, they create more momentum. More momentum. So you know, it's there's a there's a fine line in saying you know. You know about body weight. It's only it only needs to be addressed when it's negatively impacting performance. And John, anything uh, with
0: you in terms of the athletes that you're working with and uh, body weight and the effect? I know you talked about um, a couple of different departments funneling all that information into wanting to make some decisions. Anything you found there?
4: Yeah, I mean, it, it, at the end of the day, body weight is another measurement that we take as part of our athlete monitoring program and we do body composition as well, but um, you know, body weight gets taken a couple times a week as well. And uh, it's a, it's a really important feature to consider. And we've got a really good uh, dietitian that leads the way and in managing a lot of that, but um, obviously there's, there's things that go into body weight like lower body power, there's um, pitch velocity and exit velocity with our hitters, a body weight has its hands and, in all of those things so at the end of the day it's something that we are just as mindful of as we are uh, you know rsi modified in, in a sense So that these are these are important things for performance and so it's another it's another thing that we spend a lot of time diligently looking at and i, I think it's even very similar um, you know chris touched on it with sprinting um, but we had talked earlier even about a base stealer needing a prerequisite of running so fast um, well in order to run so fast there may be a body weight intervention that's assigned to influencing that that sprint speed whether that's higher or lower like that's for um, a team of practitioners to decide but um, body weights certainly uh, going to have its influence on a lot of aspects um, of physical preparation of physical performance and then even on down the road so it's it's kind of an unsung hero or an underappreciated aspect um, I think sometimes because it's just so simple um, that, that we, we kind of forget about it. And then, um, you know, I think the other aspect of it, especially a, a mistake I personally made uh, very early on in my career and Gabe, you were probably witness to me, to me making it was that, uh, you know, from the strength conditioning background, a lot of times, um, you know, I, I early on thought that more weight was better. Um, and that wasn't necessarily the case all the time. I, I think that Um, you know, some of our, some of our guards could have actually standed to be a little bit lighter, uh, back in the day and, and maybe vice versa for some of our, uh, more towards the rim players, those post guys. So it just kind of depends too on what, again, what those demands are. And, uh, we've got to really think critically when we're moving any needle, uh, in, in our athlete monitoring program, higher or lower and how that's going to influence other aspects of performance.
3: I think it's a, it's a great point to always just look at the sport and what it needs, you know, like in, in certain sports, they don't need to look like an Olympic hundred meter runner. You know, they don't need to be, you know, that under 6% body fat. You know, if you're in a sport like basketball, you know, like John's saying, carrying any extra weight sometimes orthopedically is going to really be detrimental. And so it's making sure people are light and able to handle the the forces that they're having during the sport. So yeah, definitely appreciate you guys saying that.
0: Yeah, we'll go one more question and then we'll get over to some of our Q&A. Just a reminder for all of the attendees in there, go ahead and drop that in the chat and we'll make sure that we uh, try to get to them. We may not have time for all of them, but we'll do them in the order that we receive them. So go ahead, drop any questions you have in the chat. We'll make sure we're looking at that. Uh, My question is to Dr. Morris and everyone else will have a chance to answer if they'd like to here. Um, What is something that practitioners are potentially overvaluing as we look at force loss or power any of those things? And potentially one thing that is maybe
1: overlooked. Well, I think even within, I I think we're overvaluing the the model, of the force velocity profile and undervaluing the individual components of it. Um, You know, like I said, when you go from a very basic model to a very complex model, it gets really kind of dicey quick. Um, And I think with just, You can't just look at something and say, if I balance uh, force and velocity, have this perfect balance, it's going to transfer to the field. I'm going to have this great athlete. So if in jumping, uh, I have an optimal force velocity profile, is that going to transfer to the field? And we haven't seen it yet. Um, And I think a lot of that has to do with, well, on the day that you did that force velocity profile, what were all the factors contributing to that athlete on the day? What was what were their neurotransmitters? What was the CNS output? What was the muscular fatigue? What was their mood? What was and you see this in the research because it even has a low day to day reliability. So I test on Monday and do the exact same test again the next day. Like they can be completely different. And so that inherently just puts, you know, not flaws into the system, but it just, you have to take it with a grain of salt. Now, what I'll also say is like, there's individual components of the force velocity profile. Like, for example, horizontal force production has a a very strong correlation to a lot of sprint variables and acceleration variables. But, you know, in my sport, it's mainly an accelerator of sport. So I'm gonna trend more towards developing horse or horizontal force output than I might be doing something like vertical force because as we get farther out and, you know, or start running farther then vertical forces become more important. Um, so, you know, maybe I don't wanna maximize my vertical force production because I only have so much time. So I'm gonna go develop horizontal force. Now the trend is also like, we have to use heavy sleds to develop horizontal force, but you can develop horizontal force And a lot of different ways you're probably already doing like on a squat or Kaiser leg press or whatever it might be. There's different avenues. There's different methods to developing that. So I think we're, we're undervaluing the specific components of it, uh, overvaluing just the overall model of it. I think we just need to, you know, step back and appreciate the complexity of what you're actually measuring and understand how the day-to-day factors that affect a complex movement in an athlete will affect the tests. Uh, and we shouldn't be making, you know, global training uh, decisions that, you know, might last, you know, four to six weeks based on one test. Um, you know, so I, I, I do think that the stuff that JB, uh, you know, that group is doing is good. Uh, I think we just need to, to do a lot more in that area of getting a little bit more precise
3: And I, and I do want to jump into, like, I think a lot of times when they see a force velocity curve, they're always trying to find balance. And I think, Chris, you touched on that a little bit. And, you know, I think they're, what we're seeing with some of our tra- professional track and field athletes is it's okay for, you know, the overall force to drop. Uh, when some of our assessments we're doing with like the Air 420 leg press, like we're getting further and further into competition and their, their overall force production on that t- specific test is dropping and limb velocity is going up. And we're not gonna try to combat that and try to keep the force up necessarily because we know on the track it's being specific and they're moving more and more towards their sport. And so they might express that limb velocity, which is gonna potentially, you know, it affords itself to show up on, you know, some of the tests that we do. So I agree, like it doesn't ever, it doesn't have to be a perfect slope. And I think there's gonna be ebbs and flows um, when you do like different types of the
4: different type of test. Yeah. I, I tend to agree with pretty much everything said there. I don't have a, a ton to add. I think that one thing to point out is even what Chris started with today was a little bit of that history. And we, we started off with a really uh, like kind of elegant depiction of the force velocity relationship. That curve has continued to be useful to people. And so a lot of the profiles that you see, even with things that are uh, more complex in nature, like sprinting, they have been distilled down to that same depiction, that same relationship. And that's okay, because it makes it accessible for people to make decisions off of. But to Chris's point, um, the decisions that are made are off of those individual components. Because what, what you're really trying to do is to increase the area underneath that curve, which is the power production potential of that athlete like that that's really what you're trying to raise the reserve there in a sense and that that involves manipulating your training around those individual components along with a, a host of other things don't get me wrong but um that, that's where uh you know i think gabe to your to your point of you know what's being kind of overlooked it's it's that these these force velocity profiles are actually really good and useful constructs in just ensuring that we are providing adequate variation and the right type of variation uh, in our training and not uh, kind of overplaying our hand uh, with some other aspects of program design. So that, that's really kind of what those things can continue to speak to us regardless um, because we've kept the relationship itself pretty, pretty simple.
1: I do want to add in, go ahead, Chris. Um, Oh, sorry, Todd. I lost my train of thought. Go for it.
5: Perfect.
3: Uh, What I was going to add is, you know, we see when we talk about force philosophy profile, I think everybody's mind goes to a specific exercise that maybe they've been exposed to. Like some people, when they hear it, they go to running. When some people hear it, they go to counter movement jump. When some people hear it, they go to leg press. And I think it's important to just identify and when you look at the research and the different things you're reading in you know, different textbooks, like there's basically four levels to it, where it's at the muscular level, like on a single, single muscle that they're doing in a lab, to a, a single joint, to a multi-joint exercise, and then to things that mimic more sporting movements. Now, I think it's, it's important to appreciate the spectrum and for when you're trying to understand what all this actually means and, and know that there's different levels and it's different on every level. And I think it's important for people to kind of understand that. And John, I, I think it'd be good for you to jump in when we were talking about previously when we we're talking about at the at the lowest level, you know, what what are those constraints or what a you know what do you see in a lab to when you get all the way out to a sporting movement, like on that spectrum.
4: I don't want to keep Chris on ice. You you have something you want to add there?
1: Oh no, I was just gonna make the the overall comment, like just on uh, training application. If, if the thing that we're trying to do is improve power and power is a function of force and velocity, like we've been training this way for a long time. Louis Simmons has been training this way for a long time. We're either going to maximize force or we can maximize velocity and all roads lead to increased power. And I think when you start getting into those like dead zones of like speed, strength, strength, speed, and all these people trying to program around that, you you're really not maximizing the full potential I think in, you know, those two extremes. So like I said, I think the more technology we get, sometimes it's a hindrance because then we start trying to get a little bit too complicated with our training, but.
2: Yeah. And that that actually provides a pretty good segue to what your question was, Ty. Like we, power is important. Power is valuable. Muscular power is really important, uh, for performance. Even when we look at, uh, being able to distinguish between uh, people at different levels of play, power is one of those things, the power producing ability, however you want to measure it, is one of those things that discriminates levels of performance. Um, and so like it becomes pretty log- logical there that we want to train to improve power production. Like We want to give the athlete a greater potential to express all of that within the context of their sport. And so not only do we improve the general power producing ability, but a lot of times we try to even select exercises that meet some of the tenets of dynamic correspondence and um, you know, all those things are, are in place. And so producing higher peak power values at with, or using these exercises that satisfy those tenants, like we should be able to then improve sport performance, but we all know from being in sport that it's, uh, hardly the case and that there's a lot of uh, overfitting that's occurring there that, that, that shouldn't necessarily influence what we uh, aspire to do within training and within our domain and what, what types of things we target in training. But um, there's a whole lot of assumptions made in the jump from like training to improve peak power and influencing uh, sport performance. And those things are mediated by a lot of the things already discussed today. Um, but it's it's more of a, a cautionary tale that though these things may all be true uh, their aggregate and their influence on the field may not necessarily be a one-to-one there for us
0: yeah that's great we got a lot of great uh stuff in there great opinions guys i really appreciate that i'm going to kick it over to mike here to uh look at the q a and see what we got here and give our attendees a chance to ask some questions
5: Awesome, we got some great questions uh, trickling in, so feel free to flick them through the chat and we'll make sure uh, we get to them. Uh, First one is coming from Tyler Linden uh, with his experience as a human performance consultant. Curious uh, to get your guys' thoughts since he's been around and seen a lot of world-class organizations across the globe. So his question is, uh, Todd, I'm gonna direct this towards you. Uh, What do you sacrifice when trying to chase speed over movement efficiency? i going to piggyback off Tyler a little bit just because he's a good friend of mine. Um, does it matter about the equipment or modality and exercise on top of that as well? Yeah, great, great question, Tyler.
3: And for me, my mind immediately goes to some of the Olympic lifts, especially when you're implementing um, velocity-based training and you're having, you know, the numbers show right in front of them. That's that's an instance where you see athletes are going to do whatever they can to try to get that higher number. And a lot of times that that results in poor movement efficiency of the lift. And that's why you, you may wanna look, if you're trying to express certain qualities, you look at something that's maybe a little more constrained. Like, you know, if you're using like a, like for instance, a lot of college weight rooms, you have the air squat or like the air squat pro where it's really hard to cheat that movement, but you can still have that max intent. And so I think exercise selection becomes really important when you start chasing
5: speed. Awesome. Love it, Todd. Um, yeah, we're going to quickly rip through these as we want to make sure we get to an all, getting to all of them. Uh, the next one is coming from Floris. Uh, what do you think about AS profiles made by GPS like J.B. Morin suggested in one of his papers for soccer and other team sports? Acceleration speed profile, is it reliable and valid? Dr. Morris, do you want to tackle this one?
1: Well, yeah i mean i think you run into the same issues i've been talking about and that like you mix in the the validity and reliability of just the assessment itself with the validity and reliability of the gps sensor and you just doubled you know error in your measurement um the other thing that i I have an issue because we you know we looked at this with american football as like it's everything situational based you know unless you have a very controlled movement that you can do every single time you know the data was pretty much worthless to us but you know i think the biggest thing just take the game out of it and um i like the novelty of it because you can assess it at any time like it's it's that's nice, but at the same time, like all the factors that lead to error in that are just you're getting double error in just the assessment itself and another error with the measurement device that you're using. And I think it, it complicates uh, that. So again, I think it's something that you can look at because you already have GPS, uh, but then just kind of take it with a grain of salt. Awesome.
2: Thank you, Dr. Morris. Uh, I agree on. with that there. Might just have one little thing to add there. One, like, our, our head of R and D is brilliant. Uh, he has a really great saying though, and it's to do simple better. Um, and that's, a the, the, those profiles, it's not that they're, you know, good or bad inherently or, or useless or useful inherently, but, um, you know, we've been evaluating the sprint abilities of the best sprinters in the world in the hundred meter using velocity displacement curves for like, forever. And so if you're really looking to uh, like, take a look at, The acceleration abilities, the top speed abilities of of a soccer player, a football player, a basketball player, whatever the case may be, like measuring velocity and displacement is really super simple and can give you a ton of good information um, that, that you don't really have to do anything too complicated with there.
5: Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Waggle. And uh, we'll direct this question towards you as well. Um, Do you have a, do you have different metrics? This is from Timothy. Apologies. Uh, Do you have different metrics and or tests that you assess eccentric FV characteristics?
2: Not necessarily that we, we assess them. Um, It's obviously really different than concentric force velocity characteristics, like the eccentric Uh, phase is not constrained by velocity uh in terms of its force production and so you've got a really unique situation there um you do see people able to uh, get stronger in the eccentric phase specifically which would um, influence kind of some of those force and velocity characteristics Um, but isolating that down uh is not something that that i've got any experience with um but uh I'm sure it will become increasingly important, especially as, as kind of the consideration of those curves continues to broaden in our field.
1: Yeah, I mean, even in research, we just, it's so hard to measure uh, on the eccentric side. I mean, it looks nice and like the original uh, AV Hill stuff, but when you start actually getting into like, you know, in vivo type measures, it's, it's nearly impossible uh, to measure on the eccentric component.
5: Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Uh, this one's coming from Sarah Lynn. Uh, what are your suggestions for introducing these principles to non-athletes or beginner
1: exercisers? So, Dr. Morris, you want to go ahead? Yeah, I think when you're dealing with beginner athletes, the force velocity pro, I mean, beginner athletes are going to adapt to just about any type of training stimulus. And I think when you, when you start with a beginner athlete, you just start with basic strength. Uh, I would even get into force velocity profiling um, until they've reached a certain level of mastery of just movement efficiency um, and then a sufficient amount of force, because until those two things happen, then you're just going to be building, you know, speed on top of a really shaky foundation. And that's never good for an athlete. It's just going to open them up for injuries. So I think with beginner athletes, your best bet is just to stick to movement mastery and strength. Slow and steady.
4: Be
5: awesome. And it, since we're kind of just on that force velocity profile and, uh, after the last few minutes, I guess a question for all of you, or for whoever wants to jump in, is force velocity profiling a concept or a working model?
3: Todd, I'm gonna de- I'm gonna defer Todd? to Dr. Waggle on this one.
2: Yeah, I mean we we touched on it a little bit before. I think as a model, it. Um, got some limitations, but it doesn't mean that it's not useful conceptually. Um, And when we are designing programs, we need things that are digestible and that can help inform our decision making. And so um, I I think that force velocity profiling is um, probably both concept and model, but to me, more efficacious and, and more useful as a concept. Um, particularly when we're looking at variation and to make sure that we are, you know, trying to increase the area underneath that curve and appreciating the individual components, all stuff that Dr. Morris and Todd have, have talked about too. Um, but but as a model it, it does, it suffers from uh, the classic that everything should be uh, made as simple as possible, but not simpler. Um, and especially when we look at sprinting and we look at some more complex movements, there's some Uh, There's some inherent limitations there, but that by no means uh, at all renders it useless. Uh, Quite the opposite. I think it it becomes a a pretty um, intriguing concept uh, to apply to program design.
5: Awesome. Thanks for sharing that detail, Dr. Waggle. Um, And Todd threw in a a great uh, quote by George Box, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Um, Coming in again with another question, uh, Timothy. Uh, can you comment on the difference between a force velocity profile and load velocity profile and how it impacts training
1: prescription? Dr. Morris, you want to take a stab at that one? Well, I think the load velocity profile is a little bit easier of a, a, a construct. Um, I think there's there's exercises that are are a little bit more predictive. Uh, a little bit more controlled that you can use the load velocity profile to kind of um, use for uh, exercise prescription or sorry, load uh, prescription. Um, like I said, I think it's just a little bit cleaner just because of those, those external factors that we've talked about, but um, we, don't, we haven't used load velocity profile at UK. I don't know, Waggle or Todd, have you guys used it for training prescription?
2: i have in the past um with squat and bench press and basketball um we we did some power load profiling with a squat jump with fixed loads uh 20 40 60 80 100 kilo squat jumps uh with baseball guys at east tennessee state too it's it's um there's a little bit of semantics there I, i think that Force velocity is used interchangeably with load velocity a lot of times, particularly when these profiles profiles are collected in the weight room um, and we're looking to uh, inform load prescription on our back squats or our deadlifts or you know, anything like that. Like we might still call it uh, a force velocity profile even though it's it, it, probably a technical sense, the, the load velocity profile, because it's not even necessarily true that more force is produced to lift a heavier load. Um, so it's, there's certainly some differences there. Um, it depends on how much of a purist you want to be. And, um, and really it's uh, that's, that's kind of up to the individual practitioner, but I think it's important to appreciate um, that if you're in, in, if you're changing the load and getting a profile there, that's not necessarily force production and vice versa, but I don't think it changes the way you engage with that information or that profile.
1: I do like the the auto regulatory components, like of using velocity and, and choosing load, uh, just because I'm a big fluid periodization guy. But I mean, you know, that's all B man, and and choosing weight based on velocity. I think there's some benefits of that, just because it goes back to you have somewhat of an, a built-in readiness assessment in choosing loads of which the athlete can can adapt to on that day.
4: Yeah, it's a guardrail.
1: Yeah. All right. We well, appreciate everybody's questions. Um,
0: so last question that we have for today for our three panelists, something i like to ask people that come on here is what does your own training look like now? Is it practice what you preach or are you training for something or experimenting? And I'm going to start with Todd, then go to uh, Dr. Morris and Dr. Waggle to finish it off.
3: And I'm having
0: fun in my training.
3: That's a, that's a big part that's been. Oh, you, did you mute me? Are we back?
0: Uh, there you go. You're good. All right,
3: cool. I was saying I'm, I'm having fun in my training. You know, for, for 10 years, I was, a, I was a collegiate strength conditioning coach, and I found myself having windows where I only could train for about 30 minutes or 40 minutes, and I was just rushing to get training in. You know, now I have a, I have a unique opportunity to work from home, and I got a, a garage, gym, garage gym that's outfitted with uh, Kaiser Rack, functional trainer, leg press, air squat, seated calf, and then standing hip. And so I, I, have, uh, I have the unique opportunity to go outside and get after it every day. And I've been doing, I'm doing some knee rehab because I I've accidentally slipped down my stairs when I was holding my son a couple months ago. So I'm doing a bunch of long duration isometrics. I'm doing some of, uh, some of Keith Barr's, uh, doing some collagen and vitamin C before, just trying to get my knee right. And then for my upper body, just staying on the hypertrophy train, you know, I, I, I find that that's, that's always kind of my go-to when I come back to it and having a lot of fun doing it. So I have an a untold bodybuilding competition going against Dr. Morris right now. I'm not sure if he's still aware of our competition, but we plan to meet up in July. I'm going to make sure he knows that pound for pound, I still, I still got the physique over him. So hopefully this motivates you, Chris, to get after it.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I I forgot about that. You know, when you're so ready, you don't I've been have to sneak my training ready, behind him. You know, so <laughs> but no, my my training actually I uh, got a little bit derailed. Um, You know, I was always a get yoke kind of guy. You know, in the you know in the gym banging weights all the time, and so I, I guess I kind of went against my own advice and even own fluid periodization when I was you know deadlifting. I tore my hamstring. Um, last week. So I'm just now getting some range of motion back in it, but it was a good wake up call because for me, it's, you know, you know, what, what is my, um, what is my needs analysis as a father now, now that I can't like, you know, now I can't run around the arm of Maddie right now because I'm hurt. So I've shifted my focus to being able to say, okay, what's strong enough for me. Um, and I'm already strong enough. I just need to maintain that straight work on longevity things like aerobic capacity, um, and mobility are two major deficits right now in my training program. Um, so I think for me, I think my, my shift in training is more based on and motivated by, you know, external factors like my daughter and like staying around on this earth longer for my daughter. And like, you know, I don't need to be able to squat over 600 pounds anymore. I think it was days behind, but, um, so my, my training now is a mix of just strength maintenance and then, you know, pushing the needle on aerobic capacity and then just get my mobility back in a, in a good spot. Yeah. And Chris, you can listen to our last
0: episode, the second one, Derek Henson talked a little about hamstring rehab. So that's a great resource for anyone who missed it. The second, uh, KES, uh, sprint development there and, uh, uh, kick it over and, uh, Todd, I apologize. I did mute you in my bad. And, uh, John, yeah, last one. And this last one uh, is for you to, to finish it off. My hope is that you're, if you are weightlifting still, you're not doing it diagonally and you're doing it parallel <laughs> to the room because that was something that drove me crazy when I was an intern for you is yeah. John would lift at like a 45 degree angle of the walls and uh, it, <laughs> it wasn't right. It wasn't right. So what do you got going over there?
2: Yeah, no, I'm actually, uh, I'm glad that, that Chris shared what he shared. Cause I've, I've definitely pivoted more towards that uh style of more exercise than training uh, i'm definitely just trying to be consistent and make sure that i'm that i'm moving that i'm getting plenty of aerobic training that i'm maintaining my strength because uh because i've got people that i'd like to stick around and spend more time with uh and so you know that's that's going to kind of be the priority and, and plus you know i think uh, it goes without saying like we we do need to take care of ourselves like we all have really hard jobs and and ones that demand a lot of us and and so um there's a stack of research taller than 10 buildings. That'll show us the benefits of exercise on pretty much everything related to our health, our cognitive performance, our sleep, uh, you name it. So just trying to make sure I'm consistent with that so that I can, I can help out the people that uh, still have a full playing career in front of them. All right. And John, I know you got to hop
0: off, so we appreciate your time and thank you. Uh, You don't need to stick around for the closing remarks here, but thank you again for your time here. Um, Thank you guys. Yep. Um, so that that is the time we have allotted, and, and a huge thank you for the people that attended today to join us live for this KES, and a huge thank you to our three panelists, uh, Dr. Morris, Dr. Waggle, and Todd. We appreciate their time and willingness to share their knowledge and expertise. Please give them a follow on their respective social media pages. We'll be sure to include those links on our YouTube and our Spotify, as well as Apple Podcasts. The discussions will be publicly available within forty eight hours under the Kaiser Education Series. Uh, We hope you'll join us in two weeks from now on May 25th for our
5: fourth KES panel. We appreciate everybody. Thank you and have a great day.